Hello, and welcome to our podcast, How Therapy Works, a non-denominational guide to psychotherapy for new and experienced therapists. We're here to help you understand what's going on in your sessions and what to do next. This is a standalone podcast, as well as a chapter-by-chapter companion guide to Dr. Smith's book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide. And I'm Jeffrey Smith, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at New York Medical College, and we're here to relieve some anxiety about being a therapist. And I'm Amelie Southwood, a mental health counselor in private practice certified in EMDR. Today, we're going to introduce you to a few of the most helpful concepts to clarify the work we do. This podcast is a companion to chapter 19 in the book. And we are going to be covering chapter 19 in two parts because we are talking today about a complex and broad issue, um, involuntary symptoms, grief, and depression. And Dr. Smith, you begin by stating in this chapter that depression consists of symptoms uh, that seems to come upon us for no reason and against our will. And that depression is uh, often kind of a catch-all for uh, many different um, EDPs, entrenched dysfunctional patterns. Yes, so this is one clinician's um, attempt to uh, clarify depression, which is really complicated. uh, And it certainly is controversial and there's going to be many many different points of view that you can that you can find in the literature so so this is the one that I use and I and I hope that it's helpful for other clinicians to make sense of uh, what you encounter so we we talked in the last few chapters about helpers meaning things that the non-conscious problem solver does to influence our free will to influence our choices in directions that are not always good And now we begin uh, several chapters on problems that don't involve free will, that just come upon us. And depression is certainly one of the most important of those. Uh, Nobody wants to get depressed. It just happens. And so so just by way of categorization, uh, depression, anxiety, and dissociation that are going to be covered in the next few chapters are all symptoms or problems that are involuntary. And not only are they involuntary, but they also involve quite a bit of biology. And as we've, I think we've seen, biology is not something that psychotherapy attempts to change. It may change in in the long run as a result of psychotherapy, but that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to, in psychotherapy, we're trying to help people change the way they respond to things that are happening inside and outside. So we'll get to that uh, later on, and that'll be part of the next podcast when we talk more in a more focused way about treatment for depression, about psychotherapy treatment for depression. We'll give some, some hints about it in this podcast. So to narrow down, then we're talking about things that people call depression, but it turns out that that word is used for a whole lot of different conditions and they have different aspects. And so we're going to we're going to attempt to shed some light on this whole difficult subject. Um you state in the introduction of this chapter that there are um three steps that the therapist needs to take 
to help resolve um, depression. Um, and I, I just wanted to go over them very briefly because I, I found it very useful. Um, you, you, you state that first, the therapeutic effort must focus on an indirect approach, that our task is to change thoughts and behaviors underlying the depression, and also uh, to encourage the patient to let go of obsessive efforts to end the symptoms of depression. Right, and, and that's, an, that's an old story that should now be familiar, that entrenched dysfunctional patterns, that is those ways of responding to things going on, and remember we said psychotherapy is what addresses those things, um, have two aspects. They have a feeling that's behind them that's being avoided, and then, and there were actually three aspects, there's the feeling that's being avoided, and then there are the, the thoughts that, are, that tend to make it worse, and the behaviors that tend to make it worse, and psychotherapy is going to address those, those thoughts that tend to make the situation worse, behaviors that tend to make the situation worse, and ultimately we're going to try to address the, the emotion that is being avoided. That said, you differentiate grief from depression and begin by discussing grief. Could you tell us a little bit more about it, please? Yeah, so, so let me step back a little bit and we'll sh um, describe this later as a kind of a Venn diagram, but we're gonna talk about three aspects of this problem. And one of them is the biological aspect where people's biology, and it's really brain biology, just turns on the bad feelings and turns off the good feelings in a very big and powerful way. And, uh, and that is certainly a part of grief, is this biological reaction that's very natural. And it reminds me of one, one image that just stays in my mind always of a mother elephant. And the elephant herd is, is on the move, but this mother's baby dies. And you see her for several days. Uh, she, she just stands around the baby elephant and she kind of sniffs it and pokes at it a little bit. And you, you can just sense the terrible sadness that this mother is, is going through. And finally, after about three days, for survival's sake, she, she leaves the baby elephant dead there and, and goes back to join the herd. So this is not just a human phenomenon. It's something that goes way back through mammalian biology and probably before that. So biology is a very, very important part of this whole story. On the other hand, there are other things that we call depression where people feel sad and, and a sense of loss and, and all kinds of negative affects that that don't involve the same kind of, of uh, deep down transformation of our, of our biology. And that's something that we can call depression. And, and then there's the phenomenon of depression that's psychological, that's, that's really, that shouldn't be there, that has pathology to it, and also involves this uh, biology. So we got kind of three syndromes in a way. One is grief, where we just get the biological reaction. Two is depression, 
mild depression where we don't have the biology, but we have the sadness. And three is the combination where we have the biology and the psychological um, effects that are going on. And that's a severe kind of depression. All right. So back to grief. Then grief, like the elephant, like all of us experience, when we lose something that's precious, often that's an attachment, but it can also be um, a, a human attachment. It can be an animal, a pet. It can be a principle, or it can be a cherished goal that we might have. And losing that feels very uh, deeply, uh, it transforms our life. And, uh, and for a period of time, we go into a kind of dark place and it affects biology. People lose their appetite and their sleep is disturbed, especially in the early morning. They feel worse and they wake up in the wee hours of the morning. Uh, they have trouble concentrating on anything and they may cry for uh, days and weeks about the loss. And, and so at those times, there's not much we can do except just focus on this loss. But it does have another very important and very interesting characteristic, which is that when grief unfolds the way it should, it heals. Eventually, the grief that's all-consuming becomes a dull ache that may continue for uh, forever, but the acute kind of grief is a time-limited thing. Which marks then an adaptation to the new circumstance of living without that principle or that beloved person or pet. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's a good word for that. It's acceptance. We arrive somehow at acceptance. And if we try to accelerate the process, it doesn't work. If we try to cheer up a person who's grieving, they'll, they'll be resentful because we're interrupting a natural process. Um, but when we support that process and leave room for it, then it does evolve. And after a while, people who are grieving can begin to go on with some of the basic tasks of their life. Uh, and, and it comes in waves. They may even purposefully go through a period of, of grieving. Uh, I remember a woman who lost her husband and she'd go to the closet and go through some of his clothes for a little while. And then when she'd had enough, she'd close the closet and go on with other things in her life. And then she'd go back and that was her way of processing this grief and arriving at acceptance. Yes, I, I have a patient who was recently divorced uh, from uh, a very violent man. And uh, she is in deep depression um, and doesn't, or in grief and in a state of grief, and doesn't really understand why she would be so sad about losing this husband. And I believe that this is an example of losing a principle or perhaps a dream of having to mourn uh, the dream of living uh, happily ever after. Yes. Uh, dreams are very powerful, and losing losing a dream is um, definitely a source of of mourning and grief. Yes. And so, when does grief become complicated or pathological? So, I'll propose a simple way of delineating that. I mean, when grief becomes pathological, when it's when it's taking too long. But how long is too long? And especially when you just can't tell what is the natural time course. 
And so what I would suggest that you watch for is our signs of healing because, because grief is time limited. It, it is a process that changes from week to week or from month to month. And so if you see that that process of evolution, the process of gradual acceptance isn't happening, if it remains the same, that's when we can conclude that the person is stuck, that there's another process going on, that somehow the grief has become an entrenched dysfunctional pattern in itself. And in some way, we can begin to make the assumption that it's shielding the person from some other emotion uh, and that it's in a way that it's an avoidance of emotion rather than a processing of emotion. And so then perhaps this is a good time to briefly review the seeking system, which you describe in chapter seven of the book and how it relates to loss. Yes. So the, the seeking system is really comes straight from a wonderful neurobiologist named Jak Panksepp, P-A-N-K-S-E-P-P, who died recently. And he provides a, a perhaps oversimplified, but a very, very useful continuum from the excitement of seeking a goal all the way to the grief of losing the hope of achieving that goal. The seeking system is his word for the motivational system, but it's really richer than, than just motivation. Seeking is about this biological system that we all have that attaches to any kind of goal or any principle or person or anything that we, that we come to desire and, and to seek after. And so that might be an attachment, it might be a principle and so on. And when we chase after a new goal, we feel excited and it's, and it's pleasurable and we're energized. Well, that's a continuum and that continuum goes to the other end as well. So that when enormous obstacles appear and we begin to lose hope of achieving our goal, then the system goes backwards and we feel a sense of sadness, loss, uh, hopelessness, deadness, grief. And the deeper that grief goes, the, the more the biology gets, uh, gets triggered and, and we go frankly into this uh, state of, of grieving. And so, you know, you can feel when you feel discouraged, that's the beginning of the process, but the end of the process is frankly grief. So the seeking system can be activated, giving us pleasure, and it can be deactivated, leading to pain. And by the way, uh, according to Dr. Panksepp, when it's overactivated, as in uh, cocaine overdose or schizophrenia, then you begin to see to see psychosis. You begin to see paranoia and delusions and things like that. And also, uh, also we see the same thing in mania, which we'll discuss a little bit later. So how can you tell when grieving has morphed into an EDP? Uh, so as I said, when it no longer is naturally progressing at whatever pace that might be for the given person in the given situation, when, when progress stops, that should be an, an indication that we, that we need to begin to look at avoidance of some painful emotion, perhaps avoidance of acceptance rather than an acceptance. And this should be a reminder of something we talked about a couple of podcasts ago when we talked about emotions and working with emotions in therapy. Remember, 
tears of acceptance and tears of protest. Mm -hmm. Well, there's, there's grieving for acceptance and grieving to avoid acceptance. And that one would look more like complaining. It might be, you know, woe is me. Things are never going to be the same. It's, this is awful. At first, that can be a, a pathway to acceptance. But later on, it becomes a kind of protest. So then it becomes a protest against change? I, I think the, the best way is, is protest against acceptance if there's a generality. It might also be that the person has come up on some dynamics about anger, and we'll talk more about that as we go, that just can't be resolved. And being unable to face and resolve this knot of ambivalent feelings may be involved in, in what started out as grief, then becomes uh, blocks the process and it's no longer going to progress. So unresolved feelings of anger or guilt against uh, or for a deceased person uh, could block the process of healthy mourning, healthy grief. Might be a good example, yeah. Mm -hmm. But also I think just plain acceptance is very painful. You know, acceptance is hard. And sometimes I think people just get stuck in, and don't want to go through that process of acceptance. And so they may find some other explanation or some, some way to move towards complaint rather than, than acceptance. So setting grief aside and looking at uh, EDP number 12, depression. Mm -hmm. This chapter is mainly about depression. You begin uh, your discussion of depression by saying that uh, in spite of new science, depression has become more confusing than ever. Yes, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. So here we're kind of talking about mildest forms of depression, just where people feel uh, sad and blue and, and things like that, and, and how that is part of a spectrum that goes all the way at the other end to really severe kinds of, of depression that are a little bit different. But the confusion here is that in the, in the world of psychiatry, there's been a movement to lump all kinds of depression together under one flag. And some of those have important biological aspects to them, and some of them don't. But they do have a common psychology that runs through them. And so when you take mild depression and lump it together with severe depression with biological um, symptoms and do research on the whole mishmash, you're going to come out with results that, that aren't very useful because those results are going to be the average of work with people who have basically one um, problem, severe depression, and another problem, relatively mild depression. So, so it is quite confusing. So help us sort it out. <laughs> Okay, well, so this movement in the, in the psychiatric world, I'm going to tell you some, some things about it, and this is, this is conjecture on my part, but uh, you'll, you'll see why. So the good news is that by focusing the world on depression, the, the medical establishment has really destigmatized and brought attention to a really serious problem. This depression really, really does cause a lot of disability and loss of functioning and so on. So that's, that's a good thing that we have awareness. And now people say, oh, I have depression. 
the problem part is that the diagnostic manual from the American Psychiatric Association has a category called major depression. And major depression covers all kinds of things uh, under, under the same umbrella. And that's where the confusion comes from. But along with that goes some, some of what I think is, is bad news. And that is major depression is being presented as something that's treatable with medications. In, in one study that was published recently, uh, Penn and Tracy, they published an analysis of a large number of studies of the effectiveness of antidepressant medication. What was unusual about this study was that they published the studies that had been done that were not published in journals, as well as the ones that were published in journals. Well, what do you mean public, not published in journals? Well, when, when researchers have negative results, especially when they're being funded by, uh, by pharmaceutical companies, they'd rather not publish those, and they haven't in many instances. So when unpublished studies were taken into account and rated as to quality and so on, the end result was that, that treatment for depression was successful. Let's Psychological see. treatment of depression. Was no, this was, this was drug treatment. Depression was successful. The problem was that it was just as successful when people were given placebo as when they were given active drugs. And so the, the suggestion from this large study pretty strongly is that the drugs don't really work. Well, they don't really work when you apply them to a broad spectrum of people with different kinds of problems, some of which are mainly psychological. So, which suggests that not all depressions are the same. That's exactly right. So, why the need to lump all kinds of depressions under one flag? Well, my guess is that it's economic. The, the antidepressant drug industry amounts to about $15 billion per year of money spent on, on antidepressant medications. And so obviously the companies that provide those medications are going to exert as much influence as they can to confuse the diagnosis so that everybody is going to get antidepressants. And that's in fact what happens if you go to your family practice doctor and you say, oh, I'm feeling really mopey these days, bang, you're going to get an antidepressant drug given to you. And that may not be appropriate. It may not be what you need. It may not help. And worse than that, it'll, it may prevent you from actually seeking the psychotherapy that you need. Or it's possible that the kind of depression might be the severe kind that, that in my experience as a psychiatrist, actually does get help from those medications and, and where they might be quite important. So we've created some confusion that results in sales of a lot more antidepressant um, uh, doses of antidepressant medication than I think is good for people or, or is, is appropriate. Fortunately, these medications are not very harmful. Uh, what they do is they generally dampen all kinds of emotions. They dampen obsessive uh, concerns. They uh, counteract anxiety and they take away the blues, uh, but they also mean that when you go to the movies, you don't cry anymore. And for people who don't need antidepressant medications, having our emotions blocked or truncated is really not a good thing. So that really poses a great difficulty because if it poses a difficulty for the therapist, because if many antidepressants end up having a placebo effect, 
and uh, the patient is nonetheless restricted in his range of emotivity. The psychological work that we do with them is blunted somewhat, no? It is. It's not as bad an effect as sedative medications like benzodiazepines, which make people not feel much of anything. But often, I think that that in a more general way, to a certain extent, antidepressant medications do work against psychotherapy. Sometimes I, I do try generally to get people off their medications. Unfortunately, they have a withdrawal. Antidepressants, or at least the the uh, serotonin-type antidepressants cause a withdrawal which involves a heightened irritability, emotionality. Um, people become very reactive to things. I tell people that it's a little like premenstrual syndrome uh, where, where you get too much emotion. And that can be very uncomfortable for people sometimes. So the process of reducing an antidepressant is, is a thing in itself, but sometimes can be helpful to psychotherapy on the other hand, when emotions are overwhelming, uh, those drugs are, are quite useful in, in allowing people to continue to function in spite of, of really uh, painful and difficult feelings. So you would be really well positioned to answer this question because you are a psychiatrist and you do prescribe medications and you are also, uh, you, you practice therapy. So when would you say is a good time to start weaning a patient from um, antidepressants, and how how can you how can you tell? Functioning is really the key. Uh, when when a person is able to function okay to do their to do their job to maintain their relationships and and fulfill their role in life in a reasonably satisfactorily, and there's uh, emotional work that needs to be done, then that would be the time to think about decreasing uh, antidepressant medication. Okay, so that said, looking at the different types of depression in, chap in this chapter, you um, describe melancholic de depression and differentiate it from milder types of depression. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so, so by using the word melancholic, I'm, I'm kind of going away from the official categories and things like that, and, and I'm using that term, which goes way back to ancient Greece, I think, when uh, black bile was thought to be the cause of people going into serious depression, and so melan melancholy has, has to do with, uh, with black bile, if you look up the origins of the word, and what it refers to is those biological aspects of depression. When, when people go into a state which looks, biologically, it looks a lot like uh, grief, like severe grief, but psychologically, it looks more like depression because within that severe grief, people become very self-critical. They, they may feel guilty for things that they haven't done or, or severely self-critical. Uh, there's, there's a lot of judgment and negative feeling that's going on in there, which is different from, from grief. But what differentiates this from the mild kinds of depression is that appetite is lost, that if you know the person and you see them in a state and they're going into a state of severe melancholic depression, you can tell right away that they're not themselves anymore. 
and they'll be losing weight. They'll be waking up early in the morning or in the wee hours and not able to go back to sleep. Uh, they'll be feeling much worse in the morning for some reason. Those are the kind of the, the primary biological symptoms. The sleep disturbance and the appetite disturbance are the most prominent ones. There may be other things. Uh, the diagnostic books say that you can see weight gain. I haven't seen that. I think that, that when you see weight gain, that's usually something that goes with the more psychological, milder kinds of, kinds of depression. The severe ones pretty much look the same, and um, and I don't see it very often. I, I'll see maybe one or two cases or three cases a year. On the other hand, how many people do I see who, who feel depressed? Lots and lots. That's a very common thing. Uh, there are statistics that, going back to that confusing mixture of symptoms, that, that more than 6% of people can be diagnosed as having major depression in in any given year of their life. That's huge. That's way, way, way more than I see of severe depression in, in my practice. And so that's another piece of evidence that when we apply that diagnosis of major depression, we're actually lumping two different things together. So sticking with the severe kinds of depression, it looks like is there are psychological factors going on, but there's also the biological effect of the seeking system shutting down in a major way and causing all of those symptoms that it does the same as it does in severe grief. So you make what I thought was a very interesting point is that these symptoms that you describe um, are also common to grief, right? Dysregulation of sleep and appetite. Mm -hmm. um, but you say that unlike grief, melancholic depression is not self-limiting. Right. It's not because, because the healing is not part of it. In fact, it's there to avoid healing. It's there to avoid some insoluble problem. And the, the typical insoluble problem is, again, uh, negative feelings about somebody whom we need. It's a, the problem that's, that starts very early in life that begins to come up. You know, children have mixed feelings about their they're important caregivers, and those are very hard to resolve because if you're dealing with somebody to whom you can't complain and you have negative feelings that you can't resolve, but you absolutely need that person and you're afraid to uh, have it out with them, then you've got an insoluble problem. And that seems to be the kind of problem that comes up in a melancholic depression. Now, why does it come up? it seems like these insoluble situations get triggered by something. They may be smoldering unconsciously for years, but something brings it up to the surface. Um, for example, we could say in, in a pathological grief situation, the loss of a loved one where there were really strong ambivalent feelings that might raise an, an, an insoluble problem. But in general, when you, when you look at the characteristics of this melancholic kind of depression, it involves very strong negative feelings, and they're usually directed towards the self. Hatred, guilt, anger, condemnation. These are the feelings that, that unfortunately, not infrequently, do produce suicide. So um, when we hear that depression is anger turned inward, Literally, it is. 
unresolved anger or negative feelings toward an essential person, a caregiver, for instance, um, because it is not safe to express that anger, then we convert it into self-loathing, for instance. Right. And, and I'm not going to say that's the only dynamic, but that certainly is the most prominent one. And so when I hear a very depressed person who has the delusional um, belief that they misstated something on their tax return three years ago and that the IRS is about to be knocking on the door and are going to take them and throw them in jail for the rest of their life, that's not realistic. But it's the kind of content that one might find in, in a person with a severe kind of, of depression. And if you follow those, those dynamics where they're probably going to lead is towards some kind of, of self-condemnation uh, that, that is a misdirection of anger and judgment and bad feelings that originally belonged to somebody who was important in that person's life, but not the self. You also differentiate melancholic depression from bipolar illness. Yes, and, and this is a complicated one, and I'm, I'm not going to go into it because this really isn't a book about psychiatry. It's a book about psychotherapy or a, a podcast about psychotherapy. But um, there, there certainly does exist uh, this, this condition, which seems to be very biological. It runs in families. Um, people have rather little control over it. Fortunately, the medications do actually work pretty well for, for this bipolar condition where people alternate and sometimes don't alternate between periods of uh, irrational elation and uh, where they can accomplish amazing things and, and sometimes just seem more irritable. Sometimes they seem charismatic and amazingly capable. I remember a, a young man who started out depressed and when I was a resident and I gave him antidepressant medication, and in a couple of, in a few days, he came back and he said, you know, this is really working. I feel great. And I said, I thought to myself, gee, I'm, I'm a good psychiatrist. I really am producing some results here. Well, a week later, he was feeling even greater and, and missed his appointment. And the next I heard was that he had joined a professional, semi-professional baseball team. He had bought a Porsche with no money. And he was dating a centerfold uh, girl from Playboy and, um, and was on top of the world. And the next week after that, unfortunately, he was in the hands of the police. That's what can happen. And so that's where I learned that antidepressant medication really can trigger manic episodes in people who are predisposed to that. So that was an example of somebody who had both a pretty significant depression and a loss of control in an elated kind of state. And it would seem that a red flag would have been uh, the short time that lapsed from the time that he went on the medications to the time he reported such, such a, a reversal of condition. Yes, that's exactly right. A, a too, too good a response to antidepressants should be a warning sign. Right. So with regards then, to, uh, returning to melancholic depression, uh, you state that the severity of melancholic depression requires that we take the pragmatic approach that anything that can help is worth doing, and that 
the fastest and most effective way to bring the patient to a level where talk can be of benefit is generally to use medication. Absolutely. Uh, those, so, so medications are really important. And, and even if uh, they didn't show up so well in a broad-based study that, that looked at, at multiple different syndromes that really are not the same, the medications do, uh, do work and are helpful in people with severe melancholic uh, type depression. I, I think there is a, a, a vicious cycle, a kind of biological vicious cycle that gets going there. And that's why nipping it in the bud can be very helpful. And once we lose control of that, uh, that process, then it just has a tendency to spiral into something worse and worse. And it's a, it's a very distressing situation in the same way that elation can spiral out of control. Yeah. So you state that as the um, physical expression of depression, the dysregulation of sleep and appetite, which we also see in grief, but here with regards to melancholic depression, um, that as they begin to lessen, you can see more clearly the emotional vicious cycle at work that actually causes the depression or perpetuates it, aggravates it. So this is where all of the principles that we've been talking about with regard to uh, entrenched dysfunctional patterns and psychotherapy begin to come in because there's another vicious cycle that goes on and it's a psychological one where there are uh, helper symptoms that tend to make the, the depression worse. There are thoughts like thoughts of self-criticism and people pick on themselves. They find things uh, to criticize about themselves. And those thoughts deepen the depression. And so, so that's a way that thoughts as helpers can make depression worse. And then there are also, also behaviors like people who are depressed tend to isolate and that makes their depression worse. Or they may punish themselves by let's say starving themselves or in some other way hurting themselves. And, and when you hurt yourself, that makes it feel, feel worse also. And so changing those thoughts and behaviors, going back to our discussion of helpers, uh, is a way of affecting that vicious cycle, that psychological one. Then you also bring up a really interesting point, is that if anger, if depression is misdirected anger, after the negative automatic thoughts, the, the, the self-hatred, which then generates hurtful actions against their self, there comes this sort of protest um, that, that wells up, that fuels the outrage that essentially the wrong person is being victimized, right? So it's almost as if the, the depressed person becomes even angrier by, say, by thinking or feeling, wait a minute, I didn't do anything wrong, and yet they're stuck in this vicious cycle of self-punishment. Exactly. That, that's exactly it. And so, so here's where once we start to think that, okay, this, the dynamics here involve, involve anger that's misplaced against the self rather than, than whoever it might have been to begin with, then we're on the right track. And we can begin to see that hurting oneself makes the anger worse and uh, because it isn't just it's not it's not right and on the other hand the person who's full of of anger wants to hurt somebody and there's a kind of relief in being able to release some of that anger and then it has interpersonal 
dynamics too, because a depressed person is not usually isolated. Usually they're in relationships in a family. And having a depressed person in a family is very, very painful for the family. And so it can function as a kind of indirect punishment for family members. And they may feel that and then start to have uh, negative feelings towards the depressed person and that escalates things. So depression, when the anger is being misdirected, doesn't resolve itself. It, do, it isn't a real solution. And it does tend to uh, get worse and worse and, and create consequences. So Dr. Smith, you discuss, you bring up Melanie Klein and um, her understanding of the development of personality disorders and why that would occur as opposed to a person feeling symptoms of depression. Yes, this is very important because people with uh, personality disorders tend to be stuck on the two-year-old problem of... Of anger. Yes. So, so people with personality disorders have problems with anger also, but they tend to be stuck in, in a developmental level where it's about good and, and, and bad, black and white. Uh, and that has a different quality. Depression, and Melanie Klein talks about the paranoid position and the depressive position. If you want to read more about that, I, I recommend it. But the essence of it is that the quality of the emotions in depression is different. It's not black and white. It's about a kind of moral condemnation. It has a moral flavor to it. It has a flavor of should and shouldn't. And that's because the origins of these kinds of problems come after the development of the conscience. There is already a sense of values and a sense of shame and guilt. And so depressed people will talk in terms of should and ought and guilt and shame and those kinds of emotions as opposed to the, the more uh, kind of pure black and white bad person, good person of somebody with a personality disorder. This is somewhat subtle, but I, I recommend listening very carefully to your clients and listening to the quality of the, the kinds of, of negative feelings that they might be expressing. Yes. And then also in order to be able to distinguish conditions that look like depression, but are not depression, which is, uh, what we're going to go into in the next podcast um, will be uh, part two of chapter 19. And that concludes today's podcast. I'd like to thank everybody for listening to the end. And uh, we hope it's been helpful to you. We'd love you to visit Dr. Smith's website at www.howtherapyworks.com where you can purchase the book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide, and find other articles for clients and therapists. Dr. Smith, would you like to add anything? Uh, yes. You know, we've neglected to do something that podcasters usually do, which is to ask people to make comments. Uh, we would love to have comments from our listeners and, and get some sense of, of what you think of, of our podcasts and uh, what kind of role they, they have played in your uh, learning and your life. So anyway, thank you for listening, and please do leave us some comments. Okay, great. Have a good day, everybody. 
Okay, goodbye.